Jason Cormier had a successful career as a ball player. He really had the world at his fingertips. And he made a courageous decision to lead basketball and to study medicine, a decision that eventually led to him becoming a very successful neurosurgeon. Not just surgeon, but a guy who's doing surgery on the brain or on the spine. You're gonna love listening to Dr. Jason Cormier on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Dr. Jason Cormier, thank you for taking time out of a very busy practice to be with me on this episode of Unbeatable. Jeff, thanks. It's great to be here. It's a privilege to uh, share a little bit about my story and, and my life. Yeah, man. You're, you have been incredibly successful and overcome a lot of hardships. I could do four hours in this episode with you of some of the stuff that you've gone through, but obviously you don't have four hours to give. So um, let's talk about uh, life growing up in South Louisiana and having the dream of becoming a ball player and then those dreams kind of evaporating around you. Can you give everybody a little bit of your upbringing? Sure. So um, really a simple um average family here in Lafayette, Louisiana. It's a very uh, warm atmosphere. People know each other, you know, it's a Oh, I thought by warm, you meant it's scorching hot and humid down there, y'all. <laughs> it gets, you know, the, we have a very rapid environment. It could be two degrees outside one day and then it's, it's just a Sahara desert yeah. the next. So, yeah. uh, it's very kind of up in the air. Um, but, but the people are warm up, down there, right? They're very warm yeah. and it's, it's a, um, people know each other. It has that really, that, that very nice uh, Southern home, down home feeling. Uh -huh. uh, people are, are always willing to help one another. So um, grew up in a really, it's a small community. Uh, a lot of people know each other and, uh, but very progressive in, in many different ways. Um, and so my upbringing coming up, I was raised by, you know, single, single parent. My mother mm -hmm. raised four of us, um, three of the siblings. Where were you in the, in, in the four? I'm sorry, say again? Which number were you in the four children? I was number three. I all was right, three. so you had somebody getting in trouble in front of you and taking all of the pressure off of you. And, and, and also pointing the blame my way. <laughs> yeah, of well. course. You know how siblings but I had, are. I certainly had, you know, uh, my sister's one of my most favorite people in the world. She's yeah. the eldest and my older brother who, you know, I picked up some good things and tried to yeah. emulate some bad things. And then, then my younger brother, who who would uh, he he passed away um, in 1996, oh, and man. so that was a difficult sorry thing to hear. Coming up, you know, it was I we were a pretty close knit um, group. My mother was loving; she was a teacher. One, you know, uh, worked pretty hard to. Support I was going to say she mom. must be a hardworking woman to raise four she children. She really is, and um, and she and she was able to provide and put food on the table and always stress education. And I think that was really the cornerstone and the uh, the standard of which we were. Uh, that was the bare minimum. You had uh -huh. to make sure that your education was was settled, and that helped me later on in life for sure. Yeah, um, you played ball a little bit while you were in school, right? I played basketball for St. Thomas More, and I had some really good players and coaches along the way. Eventually, uh, matriculated to um, LSU, played on Dale, Dale Brown. And these are, you know, the days of Stanley Roberts yeah. and Jackson now, Mahmoud Abdurraouf and uh, Shaquille O'Neal that people know, um, and there are a number of them, uh, Wayne Sims, just some really great group of people, Ricky Blanton, and then uh, played kind of a, a semi-pro for a very short stint and then came back home and really buckled down and, and, and eventually matriculated to medical school. I so. just got to say this, you played ball with Shaquille or against Shaquille O'Neal. I tell you, Shaq is um, man. I tell you, he's a giant. He's a. He's a I big was going to say, I got this image right now of you trying to defend Shaq at the goal. You know, right there at the rim. Well, I've never really. I can never really say I defended him. Uh huh. Uh, I was on the court with him in the dungeon uh, here and there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just uh, just I've never seen a person that big move the way uh, yeah. he could move. Just and he still is like that today. Yeah, uh, big guy and just you know stays in shape. Watches his body and uh -huh. uh, it was just such a privilege to be on the court. Uh, and that was through the graces of, of God and, and and the help of Dale, Coach Dale Brown. Yeah, and my 
St. Thomas More uh, High School coach Danny Danny Broussard. So yeah, for all of the very, LSU, very LSU fans, are some of the most loyal fans on the planet. So uh, for all of the LSU fans out there, you get a chance to hear from uh, one of your own. Um, obviously, you love the game of uh, basketball, but uh, when did you decide? I think I'm going to spend my time and really focus on medicine. What was the catalyst? So my mother was in sciences and I was always pretty strong in the sciences. And when I uh, stopped playing basketball, I started working at a local hospital in Baton Rouge and uh, the, the athletic department at LSU, you know, they do a really good job in terms of keeping us involved and finishing your, your education. Yeah. And so through Mike Malik, Mike Malik and the, and the uh-huh. athletic department, I was able to finish out and, further my interest in medicine. And so through my engagements with doctors at Baton Rouge General Medical Center, you know, I started off as a transporter. I was just transporting patients, you know, uh, from their rooms to the operating room. And I remember seeing the doors of the operating room. I was like, man, I need to get behind those doors. Yeah, those what just, what that, are they doing where, back there? Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's, that's where you want to be. And so eventually I got the opportunity to go back there and I, I, I had this interview and uh, they didn't have any positions, you know, and I met with this lady, her name was Jeannie Woodrum. I remember like it was yesterday and she was the manager. And, um, and, and I said, uh, I said, look, I'm, I'm, I want to go to med school. I, I love doctors. I, I see what's going on. I want to change lives. I want to work in surgery. And she said, you know, I don't have a position right now, but if I don't know, call me tomorrow and I might have a position. Really? So I called her every single day for the next two she's weeks. She's like, oh, this guy again. It's, I know. She's like, yeah. this guy, this, something's wrong, but he's enthusiastic. So then yeah. she, I think she hired me because I just kept bugging her. Yeah, because she, she wants the phone to stop ringing. And yeah. because obviously and so, he really does care about this. Yeah, exactly. So so when I started, and Monica Winkler was also um, at that time, she, she was another nurse, higher ups. And I remember just learning so much from the texts, from the people in, in central supply, yeah. uh, the techs that were cleaning instruments and I was doing all those sorts of things. And I was hanging around the operating rooms, just like, a, just like a bug and I was just kind of peeking in. And so one day, one of the doctors said, hey, you wanna come on in? You, you look really interested yeah. and you know, and I said, yeah, I wanna come in. And so it led to, you wanna scrub in? Yes, I wanna scrub That's in. And it was like awesome. my golden, yeah, it was golden hour. And after that, I was, I was done, I yeah. was sold. You were hooked, I, I, huh? You're obviously a guy who's passionate about medicine because most people are not going to pay attention to the techs that are scrubbing the instruments and pay attention to the folks that are orderlies. They're going to, they're going to watch where the action is. So you must have loved medicine and it must be a real passion for you. I was persistent, uh, Jeff. And I tell you, um, medicine is, I just feel that there's no other place in the world where you're obviously able to interact with people when they're their most vulnerable yeah, they'll tell you things they won't tell their next door neighbor, their best friend or whatever. And you have that opportunity to interact with them and help change their lives. And through the grace of God, I've been able to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're blowing me away, by the way. Uh, there's this misconception out there of the typical college athlete who doesn't know how to read and write, but they can really, uh, you know, they're skilled with the ball. And they end up graduating from a very prestigious university with zero education. That's Definitely not the case for you. And it sounds like not the case at LSU at all. LSU changed uh, my opinion, actually, of that as well when I went there. Um, you know, we had we had tutors. Uh-huh. We had we had the bare minimum. You have to make this grade point average. And let me tell you, the SEC has one of the highest grade yeah. point average oh, yeah. across the board. And so those athletic departments really honed down even before I got there. And let me tell you, they're very strict about that. And so you're not going to find, you're never going to find athletes really graduating without, with, without being able to read and write and yeah. really manage their own businesses. Yeah. I mean, they're really successful athletes that came out of LSU. I'm one of them, but there's several of them out yeah. there. And I'm just proud to be, to be part of that alumni. Well, you must have distinguished yourself as a student because you got a number of scholarships. You, you know, you, you did really, really well, uh, you know, honors as a student. Um, so what were the scholarships and how, what's, what made you stand out of, from the crowd? So I tell you, it didn't always start out that way. When, when I started at LSU, um, it was basketball. It was, you know, kind of hanging out, uh-huh. being part of what I thought was the limelight. And, 
And so my grades suffered initially. And so I had to go back and redo some things. And it wasn't because the athletic department didn't do their part. I didn't do my part. Yeah. And that's kind of part of the failures that I had to go through, own up to, be accountable, and then, and then, and then make those things right. Uh, so eventually along the way, I got involved with, you know, coaching Special Olympics. Um, and I got involved with uh, uh, professional organizations like the pre-medical societies. Uh-huh. And those helped me really focus on where my destination, where I wanted my destination to go. And so through that, my grades really became, you know, they really skyrocketed. Yeah. And it made me, it put me, it gave me the opportunity to succeed and to acquire those sorts of scholarships uh, to be more successful what I wanted to do. Can you do the short version of you go from LSU, talk about medical school, and then, you know, eventually becoming a very skilled surgeon? Um, give us a little bit about the the challenges of that process. So first of all, basketball helped me understand time balance. You know, so yeah. if you've been in sports and you know you might leave on a Monday and come back on a Thursday and they're on chapter, they left on, you left on <laughs> chapter two, now they're in chapter seven. Yeah. You have to kind of balance those things. So taking that into um, time management, endurance from just practice and lifting weights, et cetera. By the time I got to med school, and actually med schools were impressed that, you know, when they see an athlete coming, they're like, okay, this person. They're like, here we go right. again. One of these guys, yeah. right? Right. But the endurance that you learn, you understand time management, you understand the brotherhood of it, you learn, yeah. you understand keeping your studies there, and you have the endurance to push through. So they're excited to endorse uh, the athletes. And then uh, applying to, um, to go into neurosurgery, they jumped all over it. They were like, okay, you want to be a surgeon, which means you have the endurance to do it inside of the operating room. You have that hand-eye coordination. We love that. And that's what really translated out. Now there are people that didn't go through all sports and they're, they're just yeah. as well. But I can tell you that my basketball days helped me a great deal to become the surgeon that I am today. Just in terms of education, what does it take to get to the point that you're a fully uh, educated, fully trained neurosurgeon? What were the big education steps that you had to go through to, to get to that sure. point? Sure, that's a good question, Jeff. So, uh, and in the beginning, I would say anybody that wants to do it can do it look down the road 10 or 15 years as to where you want to be. Yeah. It makes that next year a little bit easier. Right. So don't look at it because it can become a little daunting. Yeah. So four years of college, uh, then four years of medical school, and then uh, six or seven years, depending on if you do a research year, to become a full-fledged um, neurosurgeon. Yeah. I asked that, for... that. I'm go sorry. For... No, go for it, man. And then after that, uh, you have to um, – accumulate certain data or case a caseload before you become officially board certified yeah. and have it for three to five years after. You so essentially the, the average timeline on this is how long? It's about 15 to 16 yeah. years okay. of dedicated study. Yeah. I did that on purpose because um, I have the greatest respect for medical doctors all over the world. Then you take a surgeon who applies themselves and has to go through a, a specialist, uh, any kind of doctor who's a specialist, uh, goes through some, uh, you know, more intense education, but not only surgeons, but when you start to get into neurosurgery, now you're talking about intense years after year of hard work to get to this point. It's, it's, it's hard work. I think it's mental toughness, if you will. And I've experienced the mental toughness of what that means and, and, and how you bring yourself to to be able to function under times of stress. And I think that's kind of what mental toughness is. And I think you learn that, you know, in the end, many specialists in different disciplines also go through that as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, having the privilege of serving with some incredible warriors across the U.S. military, um, we talked a lot about physical toughness, what it takes to just meet the physical demands on the battlefield. But we talked even more about mental toughness and I've always found that the greatest warriors out there, the most skilled guys and gals on the battlefield were much more mentally tough than physically tough. You, Jason, have both. And um, I want to pause for just a few minutes, give you a couple of moments to talk about physical toughness and mental toughness and how these two work together and how one can help the other. 
Um, but you can't get a loan on just physical toughness. Actually, I need you to even explain the difference between toughness and just being strong. Um, and sure. can you talk physical toughness and mental toughness for a few minutes? Absolutely. So, so my, my humble opinion, I think, I think mental toughness is really the ability to function under stressful circumstances consistently on this, on the, under stressful circumstances. Yeah, in your case for 16 years. <laughs> correct. Correct. And then, and then the physical toughness is being able to work consistently through pain. Uh-huh. If you're in the gym and you're working out, you're carrying heavy artillery, that's when the physical toughness comes in. And I think there's a link in that they both feed off of one, one another. If your mental toughness can get you through to becoming physical and physically tough and vice versa. If you have a weak link in your mental toughness, then you're going to have more pain essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, and vice versa. And so it can drive you become a, to become a stronger person, not necessarily a tough person, but a stronger yeah. person. And so my and so and so when I think about what what are you can you be strong and weak? Yes, you can also be strong and tough. Yeah. You're not necessarily tough just because you're strong. So you can take a guy that's or a woman or whoever that can lift 300 pounds or bench press 300 pounds, but when something very simple comes, they can't multitasking and they squirm away. <laughs> yep. So you can be strong with the weights, but you're not really tough in terms of how you can multitask and manage things right. in the midst of a, of a crisis. You know, there is a, a naval seal that wrote this quote. I love it. I use it every time I give a talk. And, and, the, and the quote is, um, under stress, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Yeah. And that's what we're Wow, that's on. so true. Yeah. And I can't, I can't tip my hat off enough that every person that's put on that uniform, like yourself, and protected the country. And, you know, that's mental and physical toughness. And you learn it like it's the back of your hand to be able to survive and provide our way of life. Yeah. But uh, I, I mentioned this because you really do have both. Uh, it takes incredible physical discipline and toughness to be able to play ball at the collegiate level. It takes mind-blowing mental toughness to be able to meet those academic challenges year after year, gate after gate, to be a medical doctor. Um, and I have always found that the mentally tough guys and gals will figure stuff, figure out a way to accomplish the mission. The physically tough will give it everything they got. It just may or it may not be enough to accomplish the task or the challenge that's in front of them. I can't echo that enough, man. You, you have to be able to see the destination before you get there. Otherwise, you're just pumping iron and you're not going to yeah. get there. Your yeah. mental toughness will get you there. In the operating room, you know, if I'm if I'm in the midst of an aneurysm in the brain and I have to have plan A, B, and C lined up if that aneurysm ruptures to be able to get through. And it, it could be two hours, it could be seven hours, but you have to have the mental toughness to know that we have to win this game and we're going to win this game one I've, way or the other. I've just got this mental image of you with your hands inside somebody's brain for seven hours. <laughs> Um, which is mind-blowing. Let's just be honest, man. You can really study hard and you can be a genius, but to be a skilled surgeon, just having genius-level IQ isn't going to get it for you. At some point, you have to have the hands for it too, right? Absolutely. You do have to have the hands and the patience to do it. Yeah. Um, In fact, while I was preparing for this episode, we talked about this just a second ago. Um, I was thinking, I want to do a little, uh, I want to have a little fun with you for a second about skilled hands and more importantly about steady hands. Cause I'm thinking, I want the guy who's got his hands in my brains for seven hours to have a very steady hand, especially when he's got a scalpel with him and making sure that he's doing what he, uh, what needs to be done and doesn't accidentally, you know, cut something off or make an incision that doesn't need to be there. So I was doing a little bit of research. Let's just uh, have some fun with this one for a second, Jason. A little bit of research on those jobs out there that it would really benefit you if you had a pretty steady hand for this job. In other words, your job can become really, really ugly if you don't have a steady hand. The first job that comes to my mind is those are those military snipers, those guys and gals that are making a shot from about 3,000 yards away. Um, and one, just the slightest movement of your hand can change that bullet for, for meters at that kind of distance. So for me, number one on the list of a steady hand is a sniper. Wow, I, yeah, that's, yeah. That's 
pretty cool. <laughs> I was also pretty thinking about, you know, the folks that do um, all of that photo editing and they're out there, they're on Photoshop and they're sitting there clicking away, you know, 10,000 clicks into an image, trying to turn it into this beautiful piece of art. And if you make the wrong click or hit the wrong button, if, if there's not an undo button, you're in deep trouble. So you better have a steady hand if you're working Photoshop too. Um, what about the, the guy or the gal that does American Sign Language, right? Like if you, <laughs> if you couldn't, if, if, if you're all over the map when you're trying to do sign language interpretation for, or, or translation for somebody else, uh, you're out of a job pretty fast if you don't have a steady hand there. I think butchers have to have a steady yeah, hand. Yeah, you know, think, uh, thank you. Perfect. Because if you're out there cutting big chunks of meat and you got your thumb right next to it, if your hand better be perfectly steady or else you're about to be uh go to the hospital and go see jason for some surgery That's because right. <laughs> you made the wrong cut or um i don't watch all of those tv channels but there are tons of those baking challenges out there and they put this fine detail um those pastry chefs out there put this incredibly fine detail on their cake there really are like works of art and i was thinking like if you sneeze, if you make one wrong move, you just, you know, you're going to have to go back and do lots of time to fix one small mistake. Yeah. Yeah. I think race car drivers, man, yeah. race car drivers, uh, turning the curve at 200 miles uh -huh. per hour, particularly NASCAR. If you don't have steady hands, man, you're going to hit that yeah. wall and hit somebody and well, that's an expensive day. And for those of you who are driving and listening to this and not watching it, you don't get a chance to see the poster that's behind Jason, but we're going to talk about Jason in the, in the, you know, in the uh, car race car uh, in just a second. But in all of those jobs, man, I'm thinking about the skill that it takes to do it. But for me, without a doubt, a surgeon is number one and a neurosurgeon is at the top of that list because you don't really have the option of making a mistake. Is this accurate? Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, the nervous system doesn't really give you two chances. You really have one time to get it right and you have to do that the right way. There is, there has to be a degree of stress that goes along with that, right? Because you know, I can't have an off day, not while I'm, not when I've got the instruments in my hand and got somebody opened up. So how do you mitigate the stress or how do you deal with the stress that goes along with that? So a lot of stress I'll tell you occurs in, in uh, residency management. I have, you know, Dr. Mark Hadley, Dr. James Market to help, help, have help with that. And I can tell you that in terms of stress, how you manage it. It's, it's one of those things where you watch how they deal with it. And as you watch them, you try to emulate them. So now when you're on your own in private practice or in an academic practice, you know, those, those instances where you, stress comes, I mean, it's, it's yeah. one of those things, it becomes your daily um, preparation. And so no matter how many times I've taken out a brain tumor or an aneurysm or I've done spine surgery, I always make sure to prepare you know, wise man said, I think it's John Wood. he said, you know, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Yeah. So you need to kind of daily review and keep yourself up to, um, up to what's the most latest techniques because you uh -huh. can run into you know, problems and you need to have plan A, plan B, plan C. And as you prepare yourself, you will decrease the amount of stress that you undergo. So I'll tell you, every time I'm up against an aneurysm, there's a level of stress but I tend to thrive on stress. And I think you can agree with <laughs> Obviously, that. Obviously, if you, you would yeah. be in this world, if you didn't thrive a little bit on stress. Right. I, I look forward to it. And so I embrace it. And so it's become, while it's a challenge, it's, man, I can't wait to get in there to, to deal with it and see what yeah. I'm made of. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a nice challenge. I, I never thought about that. That is a great way of looking at it. You know that there is a whole lot riding on this operation, literally for the patient. Um, and there's the stress of I, you don't get a chance to make a mistake, but the, I love the outlook that you have of this is a challenge. I can't wait to get in there and see what this challenge presents and see how I, uh, you know, how I can tackle this challenge. That's a great perspective. When I, when I went to med school, part of my interview, they were, they asked me, well, you play basketball and whatnot. So why is it you want to be a surgeon? I said, well, I think about it like the three seconds left on the, sh on the shot clock. I want the ball in my hands. I want to take that shot. Yeah. And so you want to be on my table. Sure. Yeah. Every skilled athlete wants to get to themselves to that point where there's three seconds left. The ball is in my hands. We're going to win or lose based on what happens next. Here we go. Um, That's right. Yeah. 
So what brought you to racing? Because I got this image right now of Dr. Stephen Strange driving his car <laughs> off the side of a cliff and smashing his hands up so that he can't do surgery anymore. What would, pro what would prompt you to say, I'm going to pick up auto racing? Well, first off, my brother was a really... He drove cars fast all the time, so it's his fault. <laughs> Your brother was pretty much a race that. car driver from the time that he got pretty behind much, the wheel. Yeah, yeah. All right. he, he drove cars all the time. And so eventually um, I met up with a guy by the name of Jeff Goodwin, and uh -huh. he was involved in NASCAR. And ultimately he introduced me to uh, the ranks of NASCAR, uh, Mark Mark Gundrum, and other people associated with with NASCAR, and it's kind of in you know, the book. And And what happened was – I was racing go-karts at the time. By the time I got to NASCAR, I was racing professional go-karts. You jumped from, I got to hear this again. You just jumped from go-karts to NASCAR? Yes. That's yes. awesome. And, and, the, and the idea is that all the Formula One drivers were the best go-karters of their day. And so we had people in the neighborhood yeah. that had these racing go-karts. I got interested and I got hooked. Uh -huh. So I have four active, um, very strong, very fast racing go-karts that the Formula One drivers actually drive. And so it just came one thing to the next. Uh, I did this racing course in, um, in Leeds, uh, Alabama, right outside of Birmingham. Yeah, sure. No, exactly where it is. And drivers driving on the track. One um, a girl, she was driving for Indy at the time, Peppa, your last name. But she, she, said, she said, man, you, do you race somewhere? I go, I race go-karts. She goes, I can tell. And so we want you to come back for the master's course. So I did that. And after that, things just started to just develop. And so once I got in the, uh, NASCAR, uh, I was allowed to become, you know, a, a teacher about brain injuries, spinal cord injury, et cetera. And sure. I was just yeah. drivers and they were all in and kind of, I got to get inside the cars and, and, and look around and, and, and even got to get on the track a couple of times. And so that's kind of how that all, that, that all is uh, awesome. Yeah. Listen, people that are listening to this episode right now are thinking this guy is the total package. He's athletic. He is very intelligent. He's a NASCAR driver. He is a neurosurgeon. This guy has never made a mistake, never failed in his life. And uh, that certainly isn't the case. So, Jason, let's talk about some of those. You've had a lot of ups, but let's talk about some of those downs that you've had to go through. Sure. Well, I, I, in all honesty, so I've been able to get into the NASCARs. I've never driven officially. Sure. I want to take, take away from, from that. But um, sure, the, like anyone, I made bad mistakes. I did not always make the best grades uh, coming up, but my, I had a good mother that was, you know, would put a belt to your, your rear end uh -huh. and get you. Knew how to motivate out. you. Yep. And that, and that helped, man. That really helped. I, I wasn't the, the easiest kid to raise, I wasn't the easiest student. Uh, in class. And part of those failures, I was one that, you know, would spend money I didn't have. I'd charge up credit cards, money I didn't have, and essentially, and, and get in relationships and didn't take them as seriously as I mm -hmm. should have. But through that, I always remained true, I think, to God. And along the way, um, God will always show you, you know, who you are and, yep. and don't forget you really need me. He has a way of doing that. Yep. Exactly. And so I had a mother, I think, that prayed every night that, you know, her sons and her daughter would come home safe and they would listen uh, to her at some point. But as you said, you know, my failures, I would I've been involved in different things and not all those things uh, came true. You know, I got involved in the, uh, selling uh, knives one time when I was in, in college, uh, kind of in between my first and second year. And I thought, man, I'm going to save knives, make a lot of money, uh, start my own business. And that didn't happen. And so when I was a DJ in high school with these two guys, uh, Marcus Brown and Carl Martin, who were one of my best friends, and, and we had this little group, and it didn't really go anywhere. We had a demo tape and all uh -huh. that. But what happened was in 2015, I attended this um, concert, and um, it was called Hangout Fest in, in uh, Orange Beach. Hangout Skrillex Fest. Was, yes. Skrillex was like the DJ. He was up, he was an yeah. EDM super DJ. And I looked across the crowd and I was like, man, all these people are just having fun. They're not thinking about problems. They're just, it's just, I gotta, re I have to revisit that. We revisit music and DJing and all that. And so that's when, you know, I started thinking that's a passion. The passions that you have, don't forget them. And that's when it's, that's, what's going to get you yeah. through. And so I've been through, you know, detention before, you know, and not, 
formal jail sure. or whatever, but yeah. in school, having to go after school because I wasn't acting right in class, uh, having to run lines because the coach said, uh -huh. you know, you did this the wrong way. So I was never above being disciplined. And so, you know, yeah, it's a lot of things I would like to go back and do over that I could have done a whole lot better, but I learned from it. And I think through that will determination and being driven to get to overcome those things, I always wanted to be successful at something. Didn't know what it was. I came to the fork in the road several times and said, what am I going to do with my life? This is, this is nuts. I mean, I, and I think there are several people out there like that. Yeah. And if they're listening and they read and follow, just know that, be passionate about whatever it is you want to do. And it's going to happen for you. It might happen tomorrow, but you keep chiseling away from that stone and you're going to find a statue underneath. Yeah. I was just thinking you wanted to be successful at something and you have all of these talents. You're a DJ, you're a ball player, you're a race dri race car driver, you're an incredible uh, you know, student, you're a medical doctor. Your challenge is I've got way too much opportunity and I'm going to have to focus on one of those areas and just play in the others. Is that right? They had a very strange way of coming together, Jeff. You know, it's, it's, do I like surgery? I love surgery. Do I like racing? I'd race every day if I could. And so how many people can say yeah. on Friday, I get to go watch race and I go get to visit the, the track. I get to walk and talk with the drivers. And then I can't wait to get back to work on Monday because I get to operate. Yeah. I get to interact with patients. And then the music, gosh, you know, music stimulates the mind in so many different ways. Oh, it sure There's does. So yeah. Literature on it. And so when I get into my uh, studio, I, I build a studio within my home and my fiance kind of, you know, she's got to bug me to come to bed sometimes because I'm up there for hours. And, uh, but I start making music and music just stimulates the mind so much. And now I've been able to work with some pretty good people and Jeff Goodman returns yeah. again. Uh, and, and now Noah Gordon with 8-Track Entertainment and just some really good collaborations with different groups. And now I'm making music for really the professional world to hear. The, yeah, the, if somebody the, wants to listen to some of your beats, you're making EDM, right? Correct. Yeah. Like so if somebody wants to listen to your music, how do they find it? So carmusic.com is uh, the main website. Um, we um, also have uh, say that, music. Yeah, say that word one more time for those that missed it. Yeah, carmusic. So, and that's spelled C-O-R-M-M-U-Z-I-K. All right. Yeah. Right? Corm so music. music. Uh, and so it's on YouTube. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple TV. Um uh, Apple Music, iTunes, and at one point, actually, one of my songs went to number three on the, uh, on the iTunes Look Top 100, you. which is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. And, uh, and then so yeah, YouTube, and and then we have more. I've uh, been collaborating with some with some country music stars and some also some upcoming stars, and so that's been pretty cool. And and what I do is I convert country music to EDM to bring the two demographics together. For someone that doesn't listen to country music. They can now listen yeah. to it and go, that's a cool, that's a cool song. Yeah. And now they can listen to the words and understand what these country singers, which have just loads of talent, they understand what they're saying, and now they can listen to their music. I didn't even know about this. So now I know what I'm going to listen to tomorrow when I'm working out for, uh, uh, when I'm looking for some music to listen to when I'm working out. Country mixed with EDM. I can't wait to check this yeah. out. Um. You're a very driven guy. I'm putting air quotes up right now for all of the people that are listening um, and not watching this. And the word driven is the perfect description of you um, as an athlete, as a musician, as a uh, student, and as a doctor. So why not turn it into a book? Tell everybody about the book driven. Um, let, them, let everybody know where the project is and, and what the timeline looks like for it. Thanks, Jeff. So the book is called Driven, as you said. Uh, it's written by myself and Mike Harris, um, is, uh, who co-authored it. And the book is about my life, about my upbringing, about the trials and tribulations that I went to through how I was able to turn some failures into some successes uh -huh. of what I am today. And I think it's a book that's a very easy read. It's for, it's in, it, we just finished the formatting, so it's going to be out in print very, very soon. I have a number of good people working on it. Uh, in terms of getting the publication out and, and getting the book printed and then ultimately the distribution. And it's a book that it's going to, I think, touch the hearts and minds of a number of people that might think, man, these are insurmountable things. But this was an average guy 
He wasn't a genius. He wasn't a superhero. Mm -hmm. And he accomplished some pretty successful things. And how all those things came together, how music came together. You know, what's interesting, and I talk about this in the book, that my music, I basically, after I make or complete a track, I bring it into the operating room. And I let the operating room staff and also my fiance, Caitlin, I let them listen to it. And so if they go, yeah, they're kind of the litmus test. So they like it, keep it. If they don't like it, I toss it, get, get rid of it. And, and so I've, I've, I've taken that and merged those two, married those two together, if you will. I've also sent music to the to NASCAR drivers as well. They kind yeah. of get a kick out of it. And so one of the things I think it emulates is kind of moving your head. You move your head yeah. in a surgery. You move your head in racing. You move your head in music. And at the end of it, you know, now working with A-Track Entertainment, we have two billboards that we're sitting on with Aaron Lewis and Ira Dean. And yeah, Jeffrey all right song am i the only one and so that's been it's just been amazing it's an amazing trip and i think that in the book you're not going to see or read about a person that did it perfect every time you're not going to read about a person that was just successful you're going to read a person about a person that went through mental abuse that went through child physical yeah. abuse that had some depression that encountered those things that wasn't perfect but through all that found and had the mental toughness the ability, again, to push through stress and stressful situations and said, you know what, this is not going to be the end for me. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to drive and I'm going to get there some kind of way. Yeah, I wanted to just give you a, a moment now. to. So there's a lot of people that are listening that are saying this guy's just good at everything that he does, but that is not your whole story. And Driven describes you had some real challenges and some real failures that you had to overcome and figure out how to turn those failures into successes. So with, a, with the last few minutes, can you just describe for somebody just one example? Don't, don't give the whole book away. Make, go out and buy the book, Driven, when it comes out this fall. Um, but give one example from the book of a, of a challenge or a failure that you really had to confront. And I love your words. You had to own up to your failure instead of putting it on somebody else. But you turned the failure around and didn't let it become final. You learned from it, grew from it, and became successful because of it. Can you share one example of that? Sure. Absolutely. So, so before um, I entered medical school, uh, my younger brother passed away. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went into a really deep, dark space. Uh, I was very depressed. And I'd actually become suicidal. And it was a, it, I didn't want to talk about it. I had several instances where I think this is it. And... I was being pretty selfish and I felt like the world, I could just be better off without the yeah. world and whatnot. And through going to medical school, um, my first, I remember my first test, the, the first test we took in medical school, uh, and I did, I did well on it and it sent me even further down that dark really? pathway. I was, you're right, I was thinking about my brother and he's not here to enjoy that. Oh, and yeah, now you know, I why couldn't be here and all those sorts of things. And why am I deserving? I shouldn't be deserving of this. And so I felt, I felt like I wanted to just escape and the world just didn't matter. And so it took me some time through finally talking to people and seeing where other people who were successful also encountered some of these mental things. Yeah. Some people, great stars like, you know, Robin Williams and, uh, you know, you know, commit suicide. Uh-huh. No one is, no one is immune That's to right. it. Even as a doctor and pursuing all the things that I pursue, everyone has an element of depression and we need to talk about it because there are more people even more successful than I am that undergo these things. And once I started talking about it, I was able to see, you know what? I do have something to offer and I will be missed and I, I shouldn't be this selfish. And so it took me some time through talking, um, speaking to different psychologists who really helped me get over that and leading to that, I was successful in med school. And at one point had an encounter, um, where, Again, another another failure. Um, I had a, a situation um, where I was out one night with some friends, and I got pulled over. Um, and it was a situation where I had to face and look. No one's perfect, yeah. and you know the first thing you have to do is forgive the person right. in the mirror. And if you can do that, and you can, because God forgives us, you have to hone in on what's important. Right. And what's important to me, my pot of gold is that I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I have, I think, what, what's a perfect plan, and that's to really follow my dreams. Right. And with, 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 with my pot of gold is my family, my fiance, Caitlin, our two kids, Brixton and Celine. And I drive every day for that. And without that, I don't know where I would be today. 
and their families. And it's just been great. Yeah. Um, your, th- this story is so powerful, losing your brother and all of the grief that goes along with that. And I've seen similar circumstances among warriors that they develop what we would call survivor guilt, and they don't feel worthy to be around anymore because the guy or gal that was killed, they were a much better person. And now when good stuff happens to me, it actually makes me worse. It makes me feel terrible because I don't feel like I should be here in the first place. So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you just did something great. It should be a great moment in school, but it's actually worse for you because you don't have your brother to celebrate and you don't even feel worthy, um, you know, to celebrate. Jeff, that, that totally nails it. I mean, exactly what you said. You feel guilty because you're this person I felt like was, was better than, than me. And so why am I here experiencing the success? And so it drove me into a darker place. But yeah. now I understand the message in that and that now you're placed with a responsibility to do more. And, you know, there's this old saying that sometimes, you know, success can take you where character can't sustain you. So oh, now yeah. you are burdened with on your shoulders to carry that torch right. and be that person with that character. And so I challenge myself every day to be a better person yeah. and to work harder than I did the day before. Well, I'm glad you brought up depression um, because anybody who's listened to your story would say, this guy's got it all. This guy's accomplished it all. If there's anybody who should have never had to struggle with depression or bouts of it, surely it would be you. But the, the, the truth is all of us, may deal with it from time to time. Some people may deal with it a lot. Um, some of the the most successful people on the planet have been f- plagued with, with bouts of depression. And especially over the last few years, um, man, the isolation and the, the loneliness that went along with COVID really brought this to the surface. So Jason, let's say that there's somebody who is starting to struggle with it right now. Um, and they have never really reached out for help before, and they're not even sure that they want to reach out for help. Can you, I want you to, uh, you know, give them a little bit of advice right now. I want you to give them a prescription. They're dealing with depression and they're not sure if they even want somebody's help because they're not sure if they trust that it's going to make a difference. Can you give them some advice right now? Sure. Jeff, I, I would say that I have been where you are maybe worse and maybe not, but I would say, talk about it. I would say that you're probably feeling embarrassed. You probably don't want people to know. Mm -hmm. And I was there as well. I didn't want anyone to know I had an ego. I was a basketball player, this, that, and the other. And you don't want anyone to know that you're depressed because then you automatically think they're going to think you're crazy and now people are looking at you. But I will tell you, there are millions and millions of people that feel the exact same thing. And the people that talk about it are those that get better. People that talk about it will gain more support. If you sit in a silo, then you're probably going to end up in that silo. And I can tell you that I have been there. It sucks. It's horrible. Anybody tells you it's a great feeling, they're not telling you the truth. <laughs> yeah. Anybody tells you that they're they're not embarrassed to talk about it, they're not telling you the truth, talk about it. And you will find more doors open and more people willing to help. And you will find successes that you had never dreamed, you've never dreamed that, that you can actually accomplish. And I tell you, there's some the four things that I think will help improve happiness for those that are, you know, really down and, and they're depressed and whatnot. And pretty much like you said, in COVID, you know, the, the first thing I say is, you know, wake up early every single day, get, right. get started, get your sleep, but wake up, you know, early every day. Second, try to work harder than you think you did the day before. Third, don't go longer than three days without working out and, yeah. and number four, uh, take time to read something. Even if it's a paragraph, read something every single day. And you're going to stimulate your heart, your mind, your brain, all those different things. Package, yeah. It's going to give you something more positive. You're going to read something in the newspaper, wherever it is on the wall, and it's going to prompt you to just, man, you know what? I could do that. Yeah. And then once you start with, I can do that, and you start, you engage that conversation, and you find just, you know, again, Average people like me became a neurosurgeon. Anybody can do it. It's dedication and understanding that you generate that mental toughness. And through your brain and neuroplasticity, you will, you will forge that sort of positive energy and you will continue to get better. You're depressed. I get it. I was there. I know what you're talking about. And I was down and I was in a dark spot. 
And I made it out through some of those simple things. Anybody can do it. I was just thinking, it's funny that you would use this uh, phrase mental toughness because I was thinking he is, Jason is just giving you right now a prescription on how to develop mental toughness. If you're struggling right now, you do the little small exercises that make you a little bit stronger. And then you do stronger exercises that make make you even stronger. And that's how you build mental toughness. You can't lift weights for it, but you can do some little small things that you're hearing from Jason right now. And Jeff, you're so right. And you know, it's not something that I'll be honest with you. It's not something you can go and buy at the store, right? It's not going to be packaged. Doesn't in the come in a pill field. bottle. Yeah. You, you, you have to commit. There's going to be a challenge. It's going to be hard, but it's harder if you're sitting there by yourself, right. like you're alone when there's so many different resources out there by yourself. It's a big world to figure out that big equation yeah. out. Yeah. And so if you're willing to commit, you're willing to accept the challenge be consistent about what you want to do, man, you can make it out. You yeah. can give the rest of the world an opportunity to hear. Hey, I want people to figure out how they can get in touch with you. So you have a successful practice right now in South Louisiana. Tell everybody about your practice. So I practice general neurosurgery. What that means is I operate on the brain and the spine. Um, and I do a number of um, complex intracranial tumors, which could include intraoperative brain mapping. Your patients are wide awake, and we, we test them on the table, which is kind of cool. And uh, That uh, sounds cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. It's, probably people see it on Discovery, but yeah, we, we, uh, that, that really happens. Um, and so complex spine, I, I rebuild uh, uh, lower backs, the wow. cervical spine, the thoracic spines. Um, and so it's a very well-balanced practice, yeah. uh, work with residents. Um, and through that, I've been able to work with different organizations like NASCAR, like the NFL, uh, and other development football leagues. Um, I'm working with other spinal uh, instrumentation companies to develop implants. Uh, and through all that, you know, I'm, I sit on three boards for the FDA. Um, wow. There's a lot of stuff. You're cool stuff busy. Going on, man. Yeah. Um, Trying to, I'm trying to get back to uh, um, high contact sports where there are brain related injuries. Uh-huh. Uh, the Q collar is is FDA cleared and, and we're pushing that and it's been shown to stop concussions by over 80%. Wow. So, so many different things to help individuals that have been injured, um, you know, not only from head injury, but the negative impacts that COVID's had, the economic downfalls yeah. that COVID oh, has yeah. had. Yeah. And so my practice is primarily neurosurgery. But through that, I have, you know, different veins, if uh-huh. you will, arteries uh, and other specialties that have helped just make this one umbrella just really a dream, if you and, will. And I, I don't want to miss the fact that you also, you're a very, very busy guy, but you also donate a little bit of your time and your skills to a homeless clinic um, as well. Is so, that right? Correct. So when I was in med school, that's when that started. And uh-huh. so I, I wanted to definitely... Um, donate my, my time. And, and it was myself and a number of other medical students. It was part of an LSU yeah. uh, medical school in New Orleans, that program. And that helped me understand that, you know, people, everyone, every human being out there needs help. Yeah. Whether what you don't look at what they have, they have an illness and it's still a privilege to be able to right. treat them because they're trusting you. It doesn't matter what they have in their pocket, you know, and it's an opportunity to, again, uh, improve their well-being, and that's what makes me feel better at the end of the day. Yeah. If I'm able to help someone, that makes me feel better. Well, the book Driven is coming out sometime this fall. You're making music on Corn Music, Z-I-K, not S-I-C, um, com. But if people want to know more about you, how do they find out more about you? So Acadiana-Neurosurgery.com is my practice. Uh, motorsportsafetygroup.com is the motorsport safety group that I created. And I created that uh, with six neurosurgeons, um, two orthopedic surgeons, a heart surgeon, and a physiologist. And, and that group was brought together. The name kind of came in my conversations with Julian Bales that people uh-huh. probably know from the movie Concussion. And we wanted to take on high contact sports that involve, you know, the head related yeah. head impact and high um and and brain brain injury so as neurosurgeons that's near and dear to us julian's one of the uh, most notable experts in in the land Um, we took on high contact sports things like racing rugby um we took on uh the help the military in fact absolutely uh, etc and so through that i also created the motorsports brain and spine foundation 
And all those are www.motorsportsafetygroup.com and also brainspinefoundation.com. And through those, through that, we wanted to create this educational portal or exchange, if you will, to allow people to go there and find out the truth about brain injury and traumatic uh, and, and chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, uh, dementia in high school players, um, professional football players, race car drivers, et cetera. And so that's where we created that, that whole situation. And so I would encourage people to um, tune into or go to those websites. Uh-huh. And that will also provide links to the Twitter pages and, yeah. and, uh, uh, and also the Instagram pages. And there's a wealth of information about brain injury, um, about how you can keep uh, yourself safer and protect your brain. Yeah. And for those of you who are driving, he used a couple of long um URLs. So we'll put links to that in the notes to this uh, episode and just go check out the notes and you can, you can uh, hyperlink directly to those sites. Jason, thank you for, I, I, I know you're at the hospital or I mean, you're at your practice right now. You've got patients that you're treating today. So thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to be with us, man. You've got an incredible story. Jeff, thank you. There are a lot of people involved in that story. Again, beginning with my fiance, Caitlin, our two kids, Brixton and Celine. And Again, that's my, that's, that's my pot of gold. Yeah. That's what gets me through the day and yep. pushes me. I think everyone has that. And even if you don't, if you're sitting in a silo and you're depressed, there's someone out there that cares a whole lot about you. Speak up about it. Yeah. And just to drive a lot of unsung heroes at different hospitals and in my practice, it takes a team effort to make yeah. all this work. So, well, you, you, you are a driven guy. So who better to write the book driven? Can't wait to see it this fall. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Have a great day. You too. I don't know if it occurred to you like it did to me. A guy that has accomplished all that Jason accomplished in this episode is also a guy who struggled with depression and made that really courageous decision to reach out and to get some help, which says no matter who you are, There's going to be some challenges in life, and sometimes you're going to need a little bit of help in those challenges if you're struggling, not just with depression, but if you're just struggling now, take the hardest step. The first step is always the hardest step. Reach out and let somebody that you trust know you're struggling, and they'll come alongside you, and then you'll be able to tackle that challenge with them, and you too can be unbeatable. Hey, if you found this broadcast for the first time and you really like what you heard today, why don't you go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform? If you've been listening to us for a while, you can do us a favor and let everybody else know how you feel about this podcast by rating us on the prominent podcast platforms or by following us on social media. Just look for at Unbeatable Podcast. Did you know that we have a totally free resource? It's called the Survival Guide, the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide, and it's just chocked full of quotes and ideas to help you when you're struggling or to give you a little bit of motivation when you're down. If you want this thing completely free, all you got to do is go to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for joining me for this episode with Dr. Jason Cormier. I'll see you right back here next week.